Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey, everybody. Hello. Uh, we are here with a very tight intro at the top to tell you, hooray, our beautiful friend and former Angel on Top host, Laura Zach, is here with us today to discuss this episode and Jillian Anderson in particular. <laughs> very exciting. We also have a segment in episode from our listener, Sophie Day. Sophie works with folks on death row. Sophie's full title is a capital mitigation specialist, and uh, that'll be explained in more detail in the segment in today's episode. Also, you can get the full conversation. We encourage you to do that. It is really awesome and important. Uh, it is mm-hmm. linked in the show notes right now on Patreon. No paywall at all for free for everyone. And it'll also publish here in the main feed on Friday for those of you who prefer to listen in your apps. Such a great conversation. Now for some things that require no conversation unless you're feeling it. The results of the sexual tension awards from last episode. In fourth place, (laughs) despite his deep passion uh, with a mere 12% of the vote, it's the arson expert and salmon red flames. You know, the guy, he didn't really seem like he cared about like winning. He just cared about being it's with true. his salmon red flames. They so, don't need a trophy. They're actually perfectly content. <laughs> uh, with 14% of the vote in third place. Oh, I thought this was going to. I thought this was so horny. It would do really well. But uh, it's Mulder and Phoebe and Sherlock Holmes with a three pie problem on a misty night in Windisham. <laughs> Uh, I guess that wasn't appealing to people. I think you really sold the winner. People really go with you, Jenny. They really (laughs) go with where you want them to go. Well, I love to hear that. In second place, with 20% of the vote, you know, doing his best, but paling in comparison to the winner, it's Cecil Cecil Bob and (laughs) the drama. And in first place, as it should be, now I see that this was always how it was going to be. With 54% of the vote, it's Special Agent Dana Scully and Roasting Mulder about Phoebe Green. (laughs) I love it. Hell yeah. All right. We're going to go right into the episode today because we've got a lot to cover. This is a big Dana Scully episode. Let's fucking go. This was a trap for Mulder because he helped put you away. Well, I came here to tell you that if he dies because of what you've done, four days from now, nobody will stop me from being the one that'll throw the switch and gas you out of this life for good, you son of a bitch! That's the EX-Files 
a buffering rewatch adventure where we're watching and discussing every episode of The X-Files, one by one, spoiler free. I'm Jenny Owen Young's ex-wife of Kristen Russo, and I grew up watching The X-Files. And I'm Kristen Russo, ex-wife of Jenny Owen Young's, and I have only ever seen 13, lucky 13, episodes of The X-Files. Today, we are talking about season one, episode 13, Beyond the Sea. I almost sang it. I, I, I like put, kept the reins around it's it. It's very singable. <laughs> Beyond the Sea was written by Glenn Morgan and James Wong and directed by David Nutter, the dream team that brought you ice. It originally <laughs> aired on January 7th, 1994. According to IMDb, this is the one where Scully believes that the psychic predictions of a death row inmate are the only hope in the kidnapping of two college students. Also, this is the one where Scully's dad dies, everyone. Also, that's the low, that's the low note. On the high note, this is also the one where we have a special guest with us, don't we? Special guest. Special guest. <laughs> it is me. It is me. <laughs> uh Please welcome a longtime friend and podcasting cohort, nice. uh, Laura Zach, as I live and breathe. Hell yes. Hello. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. I I mean, just to jump in, I don't even know if this is something you're going to want to use, but <laughs> I feel like I have uh, played a special role in the timing of your exness. <laughs> oh, my- <laughs> You know, we were yeah. just writing about this. <laughs> we were. Indeed. We There's were. something about the two of you and me and podcasts and becoming exes that just really <laughs> feels right. So I'm excited for what this conversation has to hold. Uh, for those of you who may not have been with us for the whole journey, what Laura is referring to is that when Jenny and I were married, we were like, oh, we should do a podcast about Angel, the television series. But we get to that place on Buffy and Laura Zach and Brittany Ashley should totally host it. Also, we should get divorced. But the order in which that happened was like, mm-hmm. hey, Laura and Brittany, do you want to host this podcast? And they were like, hell yeah. And then we were like. Can you come over for the way? Yeah, I think it was like meeting two. I think it was meeting one. We're psyched for you to host this podcast with us. Yeah, hell yeah. Meeting two. Yeah, so just to give you. That's got to be some record breaking uh, 180ness, but it did not stop anyone from creating unstoppable vampire pods. You know, I I tried not to take it personally. I didn't, I didn't. I didn't feel, you know, I knew I wasn't that powerful, so. Right. Well, I mean, if we leave this podcast and the next time we see you, we're both divorced again, then. Oh, no, please. I don't want that now to be my we'll legacy. Now Common denominator will be Laura. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh, speaking of things that are scary, like getting divorced a second time, do you want to talk about Latoya's <laughs> scary ranking for this episode? In Indeed. Producer LaToya Ferguson renders for this episode a scary rating of one out of five thousands of souls rushing into my body. (laughs) Uh, LaToya clarifies it's more chilling than scary at times a la Twin Peaks and goes back to a performance so captivating it's hard to think about anything else. I disagreed with LaToya one time and we're still trying to mend that wound so... I'm just going to say, great, yes, maybe I was a little bit scared 
a little bit more scared personally, but I support mm. Latoya and all of her decisions. <laughs> Did you guys, you know how, I don't want to generalize, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but as I continue to be an adult, I think a lot about all of the things that I thought were going to be like very pressing. Um, when I was a kid, I was mm. like, you know, quicksand, quicksand. lava, <laughs> my house burning down, uh, these kinds of things. And also like being wrongfully convicted mm. of murder and being, um, you know, capitally punished for it. Did you ever have childhood <laughs> fears of uh, receiving the death sentence? No, but I no, did. I nothing. <laughs> I did pray to my worry dolls under my pillow every night to not have an early pregnancy, and then I didn't lose my virginity mm -hmm. till twenty one. So it worked. Congrats! <laughs> yeah, and those I, worry dolls. Well done. And I was gay. Yeah, <laughs> the worry dolls worked like overtime for you. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was not afraid of getting sentenced to death. I was afraid of getting like of like do like being caught for doing something that I didn't do. But I, I didn't go so far for me as being sentenced to the death penalty. Yeah, same. That seems like a you thing. But I would love to know if you can identify kind of where that first came up for you. Yeah, I I mean, I feel like just watching stuff like this. Not that I mean, I. It seems pretty clear there's no argument that Luther Lee Boggs did a bunch of murder. That does not seem up for debate. But I feel like as a kid, I saw a lot of like probably this episode, other procedurals, Silence of the Land, just like a lot of uh, programming that involved people who had done terrible things or sometimes had been falsely uh, mm. convicted of doing terrible things and the stories around there either you know um punishment or uh redemption nothing nothing doing you okay. you were no what i was gonna say is that you were definitely in a household where you were watching completely age inappropriate things mm -hmm. so that mm -hmm. may what makes you say <laughs> what makes you say that <laughs> that may also have contributed to like i don't even know that i knew about the death like re like i don't think i was ever given cause to think too much about the death penalty in my younger oh. years you know i mean i like knew Good. about it but i just i don't know i didn't see this episode for example at age 12 or 13 okay okay to be fair, I think learning like at a young age of such things existing, like the same thing happened for me. I think I saw something about the atomic bomb like too early and like that mm. that became my greatest fear that like you know, I didn't I didn't ever have like kind of a quirky fear. It was always like, you know, nuclear that war. I total concur. decimation. <laughs> I concur. Yeah. I had that fear. That was a fear. And I think that that came from like learning about the atomic bomb, but also like my parents would tell stories about like how they would do drills in school and have to hide under their desks and all of that. And so that like really wormed its way into my system. I'm I still Luckily society has evolved yeah. to the point yeah. where there's no reason for any mm -hmm. school children to do drills where they hide under their desks yeah. or anything like that. Wow. So good good on us. To pull us out of this horribly dark corner we found <laughs> ourselves in. Uh I wanted to also just say that there are many reasons that you're here, Laura, but um the biggest of them all is that this 
is really our first Scully episode, and there was no one, no one who we wanted to call more into the fold oh, than honestly, you. you saying that. I feel like I've been literally waiting my life for this. <laughs> <laughs> no, like I, I, and I feel like as time has gone on and we've, we've, you know, and Jillian Anderson has only aged in one direction, which is even hotter and, wow. and more people, I feel like I, I've, I've discovered and I've been delighted to discover that I'm not particularly original in the fact that I am a queer woman of an elder millennial generation who uh had a formative experience um with Dana Scully uh but at the same time I really appreciate that um I get to reside in this this role of honor in on this particular podcast well we're honored and I think feel very lucky to have you here to talk about this episode today I was hoping that for the benefit of our listenership, you could cite the unique and incredible credentials yeah. that are yours and yours alone yeah. uh, that led us here today. Correct. For sure, for sure. Uh, yeah, so I, I grew up in New Hampshire. I'm not sure why that's relevant, but just to you know, kind of set the scene. <laughs> um, and I, you know, it sounds... Like similar to you, Jenny, I probably was exposed to some media that, well, I, I don't know. I feel like X-Files was a unique one because since television functioned so differently at that time in the 90s where there were so fewer shows, I think maybe there was more of like a family custom around watching them together. So maybe there was more people of all ages and children uh, who experience certain shows that maybe now they wouldn't be the intended demographic but I probably was mm -hmm. around 11 when I started uh when I discovered the X-Files and it was probably in season two but then I went back and you know watched everything and then loyally watched it every Sunday I believe it was but I had a um I guess you could I guess you'd have to say an obsession with Dana Scully <laughs> and by extension Jillian Anderson that uh, reached a pitch uh, when I was 12 years old in 1996 uh, when at the time MTV had a an unscripted show called Fanatic which uh, the premise of this show was basically um, each episode they would have a fanatic, a fan, a super fan of some celebrity who um, had submitted themselves and kind of gushed about how much they loved XYZ celebrity. And then that fan would get to interview and spend the day with this celebrity that they loved. And so I had my bestie at the time, Megan Murphy, come over with her little like <laughs> handheld video recorder <laughs> And I like I that you just cranked the camera. Like, it was 96, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you at home who can't see Laura, she just hand-cranked her camcorder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, we didn't have any of that multimedia in my house, so that's probably how it felt to me. I was like, oh. Yeah. And um, at the time, I had all of the walls of my bedroom um, just covered it just plastered in mostly X-Files uh, and then specifically a lot of Jillian Anderson uh, 
pictures from magazines. And then of course there was also some Taylor Hansen, but, um, and so there's, <laughs> nice. yeah, she took a video of me just gushing in my very like earnest 12 year old with a new England accent, uh, way <laughs> about how much I love Jillian Anderson. And it ends up being like a 20 minute long video. And it included a, an interview with my mother, like attesting <laughs> to how much I love Jillian Anderson. Uh, my, Segments. My family dog was included. Uh, there was me kind of opening my Velcro uh, wallet to show like next to the pictures of like the school pictures of my friends was like my travel poster of the X-Files. No. So I would have it at sleepovers. Uh, so what I'm saying is extremely cool child and yeah. also very... Mm-hmm. straight mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> very straight very cool kid yes mm-hmm. and just the earnest it's very like about not only is she an incredible actress but she's a, re- a, a an incredible person I had like sought out all of her other films that were available at the time and I also w- was like writing letters to Vogue uh insisting that they like put her on the cover just feeling yes. confused yes. why she wouldn't mm-hmm. be um, mm-hmm. I submitted this video and uh, shockingly never heard from MTV, but I think we can have <laughs> yeah. our redemption tour for 1996 yeah. Laura now because it's gold. And uh, then in 1998, I attended the X-Files Expo in Boston um, and I attended in the hopes that Jillian would be there. And I had like written this like, 20 no 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 I wasn't that it was like three page long handwritten letter (laughs) and uh photos of me in front of my wall of posters tucked into the envelope and I brought it and she was not there so I ended up giving this precious parcel to Langley who I don't think you've met yet in your rewatch but uh is one of the lone gunmen um and was like please can you deliver this to Jillian and he kind of smiled it was like okay yeah sure kid type thing (laughs) no Um, problem but yeah all of this is to say so then that video the fanatic video re-emerged like in my late 20s and uh my my friend Megan was like hey I have this video that we made of you (laughs) and she showed me and I'm just like I need that And of course, in the meantime, Jillian only had become even more of an icon and specifically for queer women. And so, you know, it's timeless, really. Uh, We're going to play a segment from this. As much as you, as much as you want. I love Jillian Anderson because she's not only the most talented actress around, but she's also a very good person who funds towards a disease that her little brother has, and she's against women and children's diseases. I myself as well want to be an actress, and so she inspires me in that way. And where she's at in her life and what she's doing is exactly where I want to be in 10 or 15 years. Sometimes I'll get really frustrated with acting, and I'll get rejected from a play, or I'll just get frustrated with it. And I'll think, 
maybe maybe I'm having second thoughts. Maybe I don't want to be an actress. Maybe this isn't for me. But then when I see Gillian Anderson acting, when I'm watching The X-Files, which is one of my favorite shows, and I see her acting, she, I don't know, I just like, I know this is what I want to do. That's what I want to be. She's such an incredible and that's how I want to be a my mother. I think one of my biggest fears in life is to be a failure, to not be successful when I get older. And sometimes I wonder, again, is if, if I continue with acting, will I be a failure? Will I fail? Because I know for a fact that acting is a very hard career to get into. Look at the Xbox poster. And she just inspires me to keep trying my hardest and to never give up. And whenever I'm feeling down, I can just turn on one of my videos I have, take interviews or X files. Laura, I make a (laughs) blood oath promise uh, to you that if we ever, as a podcast, get the opportunity to interview Jillian for the pod, that you will be there. That like we will close the circle. This 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 uh, pathway that opened up in 1996 uh, will be complete if we if we can have anything to do with it i actually can hardly handle that but thank you i mean i i am i am there i also am like this is one of the only people in the world who like i i would have to try to be chill about you know what i mean like yeah Yeah. um which maybe would be entertaining for people to witness so um, I mean, the whole philosophy <laughs> behind the TV show Fanatic is just, it seems like a disaster in the making. You know what I mean? You're, how would you have even, if you are the winner, then then therefore you would not be able to do the interview. Like if you truly were the winner, you would not be able to function <laughs> and do the interview. With right. Person. And I feel like what what a thing, <laughs> what a thing to put like the talent through of the time. Like <laughs> yeah. it was so stressful. And I think like having, you know, even had a, a peripheral like slight amount of time now in this industry of like filmmaking and making things and having people recognize me even a little bit is uh you know you very quickly kind of see on the other side of like that is not comfortable when someone is projecting (laughs) something really intensely on you and like there's something so violating about someone acting like they know you and not only do they know you in this intimate intimate parasocial way but also you are like you know kind of like emblematic or iconic to them in their own personal journey and I feel like there's been something really um graceful about Jillian's handling of all of this because it seems like she is you know in different interviews it seems like she is very um fluent to and aware of that she is this person especially Mm. among queer women of certain (laughs) generation or multiple generations Mm -hmm. and I feel like she leans in in this amazing way um so yeah what I'm saying is I'm game (laughs) I thought you were (laughs) literally thought you were gonna say so what I'm saying is I'm gay and I was like correct that is the final sentence in that paragraph (laughs) but did you two have that experience because I actually didn't and I know we need to actually get into the episode but <laughs> sure <laughs> whatever <laughs> but, okay. but I um like I'm just curious about the universality of like I didn't actually become conscious of my queerness mm-hmm. until my early 20s but of course looking back retroactively at 
you know, my childhood and largely including this example of my fixation on Dana Scully, um, you know, it be, it's it's clear. <laughs> it was clear. But for me, like it never manifested, like for me, the way I kind of interpreted what I was experiencing when I first had this attachment to this character and this actor was like <laughs> wanting to insert myself like into scenarios where Scully would be deeply concerned for my well-being and mm, be yes. deeply, feel passionately <laughs> if I was in danger and would do anything to protect me and ideally would end up at my bedside at some point, but I would survive. So it's like oh, wanting to kind of be. <laughs> my God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. yes. Okay. Yes. No. Um, I feel like Jenny, you're, I don't know if this was with television characters, but I feel like you're the exact inversion of that as a kid. Uh, yes. I've, I've discussed before on the podcast how I had like this weird fixation <laughs> of like, if I had a, cr like when I was in grade school and I had a crush on a girl, but I didn't understand that it, what I was just like, oh, I just like really want to be like good friends with her. She's just like so cool. And like, so just like really, I just want to be around her, you know, and like, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> for no special reason mm -hmm. my like go-to thing like daydream would be like and then i will save her from danger on horseback i don't i've never <laughs> ridden a horse laura in my life but it seemed like the only way you know wow that's beautiful and i also i think like maybe gives a window into the, the differences between two of us in more ways than I'm comfortable yeah. or even naming. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. Like, is there always a person who thought about being saved and a person who thought about saving, you know, is that, is that a vibe? I, I lean more into your camp, Laura. I, I don't think I ever like was so clear about it because I mean, you had, if you're thinking about Dana Scully, then like, I feel like the fantasy of like her being concerned about you it's right there she's dana scully she's an fbi agent she's supposed to help you if you're whatever you know what i mean um but mine like interpersonally i don't think it was ever that clear but i definitely like wanted that person to like take like care like you know what if i needed them or like i got in a fight or you know like i needed their care their saving their help um was more my vibe than riding in on horseback and saving someone though mm. also very noble there was also an element to my fixations or fantasy that had to do with um, her thinking of me as exceptional in some way, like, oh, what a, you know, what an ingenue for her age. Like, she's just, it's like, it's like I'd be helping with the, I'd be like helping with the case and she'd be like, oh, she's just so brilliant. She's like a younger me, but also like, I love to have her around and I, I think of her as, you know, it's like. You know, to your point, it's like, is it my best friend? Is it family? Is it more like when you're not interpreting it, when it's not going through the filter of romantic or erotic, like consciously? Um, and but it definitely was like often the me being on the brink of like death and then her being so concerned and then like pulling me back and then she was even more attached you know uh, and oh. I also had a similar fantasy about Diana Troy and Dr. Crusher and Star Trek Next Generation naturally <laughs> of I was course the, I was like the the new ensign on the ship you know like who just like just gumption <laughs> and intelligence and just like just so mm. charming 
and yeah so uh, yeah of course of course brilliant Absolutely but i was brilliant. a shipper i wa- i did ship she and Mulder because that's like all and i i still would cut out like david duchovny pictures too but <laughs> David Duchovny was your beard. Yeah, absolutely. I have, I, I, um, oh my God, do I seriously have this right here? You guys, I swear this was not a prop, but I actually have a folder right here with. (gasps) What? Um, okay, uh, Laura's just pulling out like piles of photos of Gillian Anderson right now. (laughs) Um, I actually promised Red Book cover. So I would make sure there was like one of him every five. So like, (laughs) It's like yeah, Jillian, yeah. Jillian, Jillian, one of David. Yeah, there's a lot here. I mean, I'm happy. Oh, that's the aspirational female to... to male crush ratio, five to one. Exactly. She's in under the wire. This is bisexual representation. Okay. Do you remember this picture of her with like... I only just was introduced to that. Anyway, and then this is me in God. high school. <laughs> Can you hold that up to the camera too there for us? Oh, my God. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh. Look at, don't you wish you had that shirt now? What a cool shirt. Super cool. Anyway. <sighs> wow. I'm sweating. <laughs> what? <are> I- <laughs> <laughs> um, what I was going to say also, Laura, is that a lot of what you imagined for yourself, and I, like I just said, I've only ever seen 13 episodes, so I don't know how things will develop, but so far it seems that clearly Mulder was giving you some inspiration for your fantasies because this man has suffered smoke inhalation. He got shot this episode. He is definitely like being cared, like taken care of by Scully often in my uh, limited experience so yeah and I noticed that we got we got a couple scenes that really um capture this very thing that it's so interesting to watch back now because I haven't watched especially these earlier episodes since I was a child so it's interesting to watch now with that self-awareness and be like oh there it is there's a <laughs> there's like her you know especially when it's someone who's so measured you know measured and competent and you know inspires respect and then what brings her emotion out like what is going to tip her into that fiery place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's all me. here for you it's me it's you, know you. I mean? <laughs> <laughs> um all right well why don't we get an insight into scully's family and her vulnerabilities so that we can find out uh, how she's gonna crack open you know okay when I started my notes watch of this episode, going into it knowing that we'd be talking to Laura, mm-hmm. and the opening shot is of an angel on top of a tree, <gasps> I mm-hmm. screamed. I too, I too was like, you know, I feel like time is nonlinear. It is folding in on itself. <laughs> like there's so much, like, am I, is there anything truly original about me or is everything coded <laughs> into me from the media I obsessively consumed in my bunk bed? Wow. <laughs> in my bunk bed. Wow. And the reason for this, I assume what you mean is that I'm passionate about my Christmas village. <laughs> well, it's your your Christmas village passion yes. and also your time hosting a podcast called Angel <laughs> on Top, inspired by another angel. On top. A- oh my God. On top. You're blowing my mind. We wow. our minds yeah, were blown for this. different reasons. But my <laughs> mind wasn't blown at all. So I like now I have two reasons to incredible. <laughs> 
Incredible. Um, I have a theory. Uh, Laura, are you a Twin Peaks person? Are do you are you familiar with Twin Peaks? I am familiar. I, I did watch the the first season. Yeah, the first this, iteration. Th- this guy, Scully's dad, is played by uh, Don Davis, uh, who was Garland Briggs in Twin Peaks. Which, like, I just feel like is so close in the universe that I would like to posit a theory that s- small spoilers for Twin Peaks. Wherever Major Garland Briggs goes to is actually just being Scully's dad. Like, I would like to put in universe that this man is both Billy's father and Scully's father. Does he have a secret family? Well, I don't think I don't know that he knows in either universe that he has this other self. I think he just is living two parallel lives. And one is the Twin Peaks universe and one is the X-Files universe. Sold. Great. Thank you, everyone, for coming to my (laughs) Twin Peaks talk. (laughs) That'd be amazing if we had received the message from the father and it was actually a Twin Peaks spoiler. You know, it's like she she got like the wrong she she, like tuned in to the wrong frequency of dad of dad. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, so this is the first uh, this is the first time that we've seen anything about Scully apart from that she works for the FBI, really. Um, And we meet both of her parents. Oh, and she's a godmother, Kristen. Uh, What? Oh, right. She's a godmother. Right. I forgot about her friend and the other kids. Sorry. We know one other thing about Scully. Um, but we meet her parents and we see the inside of her apartment where I noticed, uh, Laura, we've talked a lot about the small cross necklace that Scully wears very often. Um, she has also a cross in her kitchen hanging up. So there, there is more uh, Christian iconography in Dana Scully's home, which I took note of. She also comes from a family where her father made them take the tree down the day after Christmas. And I feel like that info- like that will shape a child. Yeah. I'm confused about the way that her father is positioned because he's like a military man, but also she seems to be the like uptight one in the family. You know what I mean? Like it's it's confusing to me and they have this exchange. So I have no idea. Like Moby Dick, it's I don't know what it's about. There's a boat. Well, because you're gay. Yes, exactly. Uh, but I, I really have never read it. Um, but I, I knew that Ahab was. I was like, oh, that's from Moby Dick. And then Starbuck. I was like, isn't that a character from a sci-fi show? And which maybe it also is. But turns out Starbuck is <laughs> is a character in Moby Dick. All of this is to say that a in in the uh, name calling that they do. She is Starbuck and he is Ahab. And when I did a cursory Google on these two characters from Moby Dick, Ahab is the one that's like loud and outrageous and makes like claims that are wild and so on and so forth. Whereas Starbuck is the one that is noted as prudent and calm and reasonable, which we know that Dana Scully is. So I didn't know if they were were trying to like. So her dad is her original Mulder. Exactly. Thank you, Laura. Yes, exactly. Wow. Uh, but the taking down of the Christmas <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, but also Ahab is the captain of the ship and Starbuck is the mm, first mate. Okay, so maybe that's I feel like more. that's what they're actually 
everybody like going has for? His I don't think we're supposed to get a cool, laid back vibe from Don Davis. Well, no, I mean I agree, but also his funeral was like at sea, not at Arlington, and like the you know mm. her mom tells this whole story about how he like came back from being uh, in Cuba, and the speaking of being afraid of things, this was during the Cuban Missile Crisis that he came back, and that like. It just he seemed to be not as like hard lined as you would think that a character played by Don Davis would be and also like a military dad would be. So I don't know. I'm just okay. All right. Putting... He's got he's got layers. He's got layers. Did you guys notice that in addition to her small cross necklace and the cross hanging in her kitchen that she also just has straight up stained glass windows yes. in her apartment? Yes. <laughs> I said, Scully has a cross also over her kitchen stove. Okay, wait. She also has stained glass windows. Does Scully live in a church? Is, uh... Dana Scully said the mystery of faith. My last note for this scene is sigh, comma. She calls him daddy. Mm. <laughs> I hate that. It's also just too bad when, you know, when you have like a female protagonist uh, co-lead of your show who has had so little character development and the first time you actually get into it it's through the point of view of being the daughter of a dad you know <laughs> daughter Daughters. of a father yeah. Yeah, on the map <laughs> uh, okay 1.47am Dana Scully sleeping on the couch while a spray on hair infomercial plays Beautiful friends, tell me, did you were you haunted by this infomercial in your youth? 100%. The one with the spray on, the spray to the bald? Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Spray, that's the name of it, actually. The spray to the bald. <laughs> and also, okay. I was haunted Good. by the prospect that she was up watching this before I saw that she was asleep. <laughs> that, that, that alone, if she had been alert... I, I would have like oh, yeah. on a level two of your fright fright scale. Like yeah, 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 yeah. Why honey? Oh. Just thinking about daddy's male pattern baldness. Oh God. Um don't say I don't want to hear daddy too many times. Please. Okay. <laughs> we can stop with that. <laughs> um yeah, she wakes up and this is so I mean, not to like keep saying Twin Peaks, but like this is like straight out of Twin Peaks. This like mouth moving, but no sound coming out. It's so creepy and so great and so Twin Peaksy. Guess what Don Davis is saying in IRL? Oh my God! What, what? Jenny? Her, the 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 speed at which Jenny is tapping together her ten fingers. <laughs> wow, he is reciting the Lord's prayer. No, <gasps> shut up. Did you set How us did up you with, know that? with all that cross no. stuff just to dunk? Like, is this now like you're spiking <laughs> no. it? No, I forgot until we got here. <laughs> did you decode it or did you find the... No, no, I, I read it. Because I watched his mouth like multiple times to see if I could figure anything out and was like, there's nothing here. Wow. Yeah. She, did uh, not, she also did not seem appropriately spooked at like him just silently mouthing with absolutely yeah. no facial expression. <laughs> As she likes talks to him and is like, I thought you guys left. And he's just like silently mouthing. Yeah. <laughs> Where's mom silently mouthing? <laughs> uh, her cordless phone is gigantic. 
Oh, it's 1993. All cordless phones were gigantic. You yeah. Know? No, I know. It's just, you know. Lucky to have Wild one. to be reminded. Uh, you know? Um, yeah, her mom calls, and uh, this is horrible. Um, her dad died very suddenly, very unexpectedly. He had a massive coronary, uh, and her mom says, he's gone. And she looks immediately back to the chair where she just saw him mouthing these words and we go to the credits um this is very sad this is and like to the jillian anderson of it all i mean there are some line deliveries in this episode that i like couldn't mark for a timestamp because they're so subtle like you really have to be watching it a clip of it wouldn't do it justice but they are astounding the way that like she has this vulnerability when she's talking about her dad and wanting to know if her dad was proud of her. And it's just an incredible performance. Uh, anyway, let's go to the woods of North Carolina. To make out point. <laughs> uh, when you were in high school, where did you make out? In my car. I didn't make out in, in high school. Oh, right. you were saving yourself. <laughs> you were saving yourself. They were I don't know if were you heard you. my whole story about going to <laughs> X-Files Expos. <laughs> I didn't have time to make out, okay? <laughs> I like that your your entry is, I don't know if you heard about me going to X-Files Expos, and then your angle is, I didn't have time. <laughs> did you see how many... No, no, I, out? those pictures did not cut themselves out from magazines. Mm, yeah. That is detailed scissor work, my friend. And, you know, you can only wow. do one kind of detailed scissor work at a, <laughs> at time, a time, in my experience. <laughs> Jenny, did you make out in cars when you were in high school? Yeah, cars were the place. Yeah, it's it's like you're moving. It's like you have a moving hotel room, you know? It's just like... Right. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Totally. When I was in cool. high school, I would like make out in my car, like parked in somebody, like just before we would get to like whoever's house we were going to. But then when I got to college, I would make out in uh, actually my then girlfriend's car, but we would drive to this like apartment complex that had a fountain that had like really pretty lights in it. So we would like take, we would take the car like to a beautiful scenic location to make out. Uh Uh (laughs) Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Sometimes I would get out of the car and make out I'm sure this will horrify Latoya, which makes me especially want to share it in the woods, uh, just in the middle of the woods. Or I would sneak into uh, State Park no. after hours. Um, you know, th- there's no one around. Yeah, except ticks. <laughs> except possibly ticks, uh, axe murderers, maybe some vampires. Uh, but, you know, I emerged unscathed. A lot of people would make out in my high school library. Which was like, it was like a big library with like lots of stacks and like different floors. And I was a library proctor, which was like the library narc. (laughs) Shut up. Did you like, did you narc on people who were making out in the library? No, I would never report them, but I would like have to do this awkward little like, hey guys, if you could just like not, (laughs) you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's so disrespectful to the books. (sighs) I don't know. That has to be one of the hottest places to ever make out in a library. The smell of books all around. Anyway, these Mm. kids are making out in their car. Um, And then uh, there's a lot of flashlights in this episode. This is the only one not held by the FBI. This is what's his name? Lucas. Lucas. Henry. Lucas Henry. Yes. Great. Thank you for being here, Laura. Thank God someone is a professional. (laughs) 
if you were going to do, if you were going to work this scam to kidnap some kids, wouldn't you just go all the way and, and get put on some like black pants and some <laughs> black boots? Well, I don't know what this like waist up fucking Zoom meeting cop outfit is, but like, <laughs> I just feel like it would have taken so little yeah, on Lucas Henry's part. But this guy wants to, like, he wants to have a reason to be violent. So hmm. probably he's like, oh, if they catch, if he catches me or like if he questions me, then I'll get to punch him in the face, which is what he does. When this kid, I mean, this is an observant kid, because let me tell you what, if I got caught making out in the woods and somebody was like, I am a cop, I would have just done whatever they said and would have not ever thought yeah. about the fact that they were wearing like uh, work boots and jeans. Yeah, me too, probably. Over at Mulder's office, which is looking very nice, Mulder is reading a criminal profile when Scully swoops out from behind him. The choreography of this scene is a choice. And she says, last time you were that engrossed, it turned out you were reading the adult video news. Kristen, in case you have not caught on to the theme, mm-hmm. Mulder likes porn. Laura! <laughs> Why did you say my name so excitedly after saying like so quickly after saying porn? Well, because I have a question for you. Uh, and for for research purposes, during my prep for the last episode, I googled oh, X Files porn to see, imagining that it must exist, of course, mm. and it does. And I was just wondering, as an aficionado who does research, mm. and you know, I think is like very well read. And well viewed. Thank Have you, you ever seen Thank any X Files porn? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? I have not seen X Files porn. I think maybe because there's nothing like the real thing type vibe. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like, uh-huh. I have. Yep. Yep. I, actually, your your anecdote like just there was like a rush of memories of my like X Files fanfic days, and <gasps> I would writing or reading reading um but i specifically would seek out erotic fanfic so um i definitely consumed a lot of written word um erotica about the two characters because then i could i Good. think i could drop into my envisioning of them um yeah. and you know i've in the last several years like one of my side hustles has been writing audio erotica so I'm just putting together right now that like that was my the the, the X Files Scully Mulder erotica fanfic was my beginning of of one branch of my writing career. Oh my god! Wow, you know that they are the duo that are responsible for the term shipping. Ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I actually I but I, I looked up exactly the timeline of that, so that did not. Because I noticed in this episode, including the scene we're in, where there's a face caress, you know, there's so much that Chris Carter has planted, like this chemistry between them or the directorial choices suggest that um, everything of which informs the full on shipping that happens. But the Mm. the term was not introduced until 1996. So we're still a couple of years out from the tension making itself well, at least that's my interpretation of kind of that gap of years. It's like it took <laughs> it took a little bit of the show being out. So really now it's just kind of like inappropriate workplace behavior. 
Uh, uh, uh. (laughs) You don't don't, uh, cup your coworker's face in your hand? Um, I, I, you know, mostly on Zoom these days. So it's it's more like taking an eraser of a pencil and just caressing on the screen, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm I want you to know <laughs> oh, I everyone. Feel it. I feel it. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm cupping Laura's face over what Zoom. What side what side right of Laura's face are you cupping? I'm cupping the left side of her face with my right hand, except my mm. right hand is about 50 times the size of her face wow it's... i'm zooming on my phone okay, it's I've a got really the other side oh oh i feel oh, so Jenny. held oh, okay oh. it's it's um it's you know a, a beautiful uh, combination of of alluring and patronizing all at once so thank you <laughs> um also, okay, well, how baby, I mean, how baby does Jillian look here? Like she was in, she was 24, I think, when she was shooting this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, she looks it's very strange to be on this side, <laughs> mm-hmm. meaning like significantly on the other side of 24 now, and be like, that mm-hmm. was, you know, that was womanhood to me. You know, that was like <laughs> yeah. woman adult. <laughs> Yeah, grown ass adult lady. Yes, the ripe old age of twenty four. Yeah. Well, I mean, you were twelve, you said. So, I mean, yeah, she was twice your age. Twice your age. Yeah. Any older than twenty four, she would have been an old woman. So you know, that was a perfect right, right, right. right. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, Yeah. What's going on, Kristen? Hit it. (laughs) Narrative points, please. Okay, well, first of all, uh, Laura took us to the moment when the face caress happens. Um, Right before, or not right before, but before we even get to the face caress, Mulder says, how are you, Dana? Has he ever called her Dana before? Uh, Dana doesn't think so because she says to herself, Scully is like, who is Dana? (laughs) She's like, Whoa, your dad, all all I had to do was have my dad die. And now we're like going to date tomorrow, you know, <laughs> calling me by my first name. Um, do we think that that was a choice by like, do we think that this was pre the writers leaning into her exclusively going by Scully? Do, do we think it was kind of early enough on that they were like playing with? Well, also, I think like when you when a when the character chooses to use Dana, that is like a signifier, right? That's like there's something yeah. happening here emotionally. Yeah. yeah. Well, and let me pull in a little bit of Latoya here because in Latoya's production notes, she talks about the fact that this is uh, January seventh. Our last episode was December seventeenth. This is after the like whatever you call the mid season finale. Um, they had a break. They had time to like think about what this episode was going to be, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and Latoya writes, this is a quote from the complete X-Files in the writing of this episode, Morgan and Wong were fueled by feeling unhappy with Scully's character development as a lot of the scenes in previous outings seem to have instead highlighted Mulder and the makers of the show were receiving complaints that Scully was quote uptight and quote bitchy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, I mean, like scratch the old patriarchy jingle just grab that clip of laura that'll be the new patriarchy yeah jingle. <laughs> oh my goodness um, it's just so it's just so yeah painful but there was a lot of like 
oh, right. We like this was a this is a two hander, but we've really been like telling like it's been the Mulder show up until now. And I think that the choice to have Mulder call her Dana has a lot of like there's probably a lot of things that go into it. But I think with the intentionality of like making this character have more layers and have more depth, that was also probably a big piece of it. I also think it was, you know, in response to like he's approaching her, at, you know, understanding she's grieving, and maybe yeah. you know, in in the context of like your father just died, like you know, mm-hmm. approaching her more with like intimate language. But stop that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's do a very uh, brief backstory here of Luther Lee Boggs. Jenny, your hand went up. Did you want to do that for the class? I was just going to say the info that we get in this scene that leads up to Boggs is that the two kids we saw have been kidnapped, Elizabeth and James. And it's the one year anniversary of another couple being kidnapped, tortured and murdered. They were held for a week uh, by the math before them. uh, Mulder says, we've got five days to find these kids. Conveniently, (laughs) Luther Lee Boggs has entered the chat. He is a man, uh, who is scheduled to be executed in one week. And he alleges that he's got some info on this kidnapping and he wants to strike a deal. Yeah. And this is, this is the massive, like turning the whole thing on its head of this episode is that for once Mulder thinks that this is a bunch of (laughs) bullshit. He thinks that Boggs is faking that he can have psychic transmissions he has uh picked up the skeptic mantle is that what you say pick up a mantle yeah he's like i believe in psychic ability without a doubt just not in this case just not in a case when it's coming from someone who's definitely trying to get back at me (laughs) yeah well and let's just i want to throw a sound clip in here um because i i want to talk about the way that Mulder talks about bugs At the age of six, Luther Boggs slaughtered every pet animal in his housing project. When he was 30, he strangled five family members over Thanksgiving dinner and then sat down to watch the fourth quarter of the Detroit Green Bay game. Some killers are products of society. Some act out past abuses. Boggs kills because he likes it. Uh, I take uh, issue with this Mulderism here. I don't uh, love this. I think it's also really interesting because later we get the backstory of Lucas Henry and it's like he witnessed this horrifying thing where his the girl that he was with was killed. His mother was decapitated in front of him, what have you. This idea that Mulder is saying like some people are just bad is not a great, not a great vibe. Just hard stop. So I want to put that in here. He's also never like, aliens might be bad. <laughs> this is the only time Mulder has come out saying something was bad. He also like, the thing that really is amazing to me in this episode is that Mulder is really walking the line of like, he's either having psychic transmissions or he's involved in the kidnapping. And it's like, dude, why not both? Like, there's nothing oh, There's nothing that would tell us that he can't be uh, psychic and also be involved in these murders. And it feels like the Mulder that I know based on 12 episodes would have allowed that to be a possibility because he allows literally everything to be a possibility all the time. But I get it. They want him to be the skeptic so that 
Scully gets to take up some room in the believer uh, bracket. Fine. We should also mention that Boggs was previously uh, scheduled to be executed and made it all the way to the chair before receiving an executive stay. And he claims that that gave him the ability to communicate uh, with spirits. Yeah. Which, spoiler alert, it fucking did. He's telling the truth. Okay, the cheek is caressed. Now, <laughs> there's there's no way around it. There's no way around it. Laura, you probably don't know this, but we have a couple of show-specific jingles, and one of them is for significant eye contacts. And uh, not to like get too ahead of myself, but uh, they actually earn it twice in this episode, and this cheek caress gets them significant eye contact. <laughs> Yeah, I also, I didn't realize how much I missed the very specific, what has become iconic cadence between these two performers, like the rhythm they find. It's almost like Mm -hmm. whoever kind of directed them or, you know, if if it was more them organically finding it together through collaboration, like it feels a little bit like they were told, go a little smaller. It's sort of like listening to an audiobook on like three quarter speed. You Mm -hmm. know, there's something just kind of like, I just love the pacing of it. And then by way of contrast, yeah. Boggs' performance uh, was very like, I was like, okay, we're in early mid nineties. There's, I feel like portrayals of criminals or murderers. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to have, I'm not going to be able to immediately back this up with, with examples of like pulling specific things. But when I think yeah. of nineties thrillers or movies in general of my childhood, that had people who were on death row or were portrayed as bad people. Like they would really a lot of times kind of have the actors perform in a way where it's like the, the bad is just right there. You know, it's like, there's mm-hmm. like, you, you know, it's, mm. it's a very kind of on the nose theatrical, like I'm a creepy guy, you know? As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Also, when you were talking about how you so missed the incredible like dynamic performance dynamic, I at, for a minute I was like, oh, she's talking about Jenny and I. She like really missed Jenny and I in our dynamic. That is well. only Kristen. Yeah, Kristen you. is the only half of this dynamic that would be like she must be talking about us. But honestly, that being Jenny's response to you saying that, Kristen, perfect <laughs> chef's kiss, beautiful. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Uh, uh, I just want to say very briefly in passing here, as I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about as we move forward. I like Brad Dourif's performance in this episode. Oh, no, no. To be clear, I I wasn't intending it to be a critique of his performance. It's just a it's a big performance. It's Mm -hmm. a very like, yeah, yeah. It takes us on. it, It did feel more like a stage performance of like where you're kind of invite where someone is using the modality of the performance to like bring us into anguish versus someone who's kind of holding back or like some sort of nuance and making it smaller. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And I mean, it's like a big stylistic choice and to your point, like in a show against the backdrop of a show that is built on a dynamic between two people that is so like understated and kind of like monotone at times is, I guess it makes it even bigger by comparison. And he's also having to navigate acting. It's almost like a portrayal, uh, you know, whenever someone's portraying possession or portraying like multiple personalities, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think you do have to be a bit bigger to just distinguish between when different people are dropping in. Yeah, yeah, which yeah, I think yeah. he does really brilliantly. His, I mean, you know, we see him deliver dialogue from the vantage from the, like the soul spirit person of many characters, including Scully. Um, and I, I think that he does a really brilliant job of us knowing. I mean, clearly when he's doing Scully, we know he's doing Scully, but. There is such a difference between each person that he gives voice to. And in the full uh, conversation that we have with our listener, Sophie, we talk about this a bit, too, because to your point, uh, Laura, there is something embedded in like all of our memories growing up in like the 90s and um, seeing like criminals and uh, folks who were like life in prison or death row and portrayed very um, explicitly evil. Um, and we ha- and we do talk a bit about how this uh, character is given much more space than a lot of other characters had been, especially mm-hmm. because we see 
like we see him seeing the spirits of the people that he killed. We see his like actual fear. We see his trauma. We, you know, and so on and so forth, which in a lot of cases is completely not a part of that character at all. You only see like the mm-hmm. knuckle tattoos and the shouting and screaming and what have That's you. That's true. So- and we have like the nuance of, of Scully's arc in relation to him. Yeah. 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 Okay, let's go to a funeral. Um, Whoa, wait. Oh, I'm so sorry. Wait. Oh, you're right. There is one really important moment before the funeral. Scully waits until Mulder leaves the room, (laughs) and she scurries over to the filing cabinet, the ex-filing cabinet, (laughs) and she (laughs) through the files and comes across the file, pulls it out, visionary encounters with the dead. She holds it. She stares at it, and then she's like, no, I couldn't possibly, and puts it back and leaves. Seems like a really slim file, if you ask me. For sure, because I also feel like everyone, (laughs) almost everyone's had one of those. Right? I mean, I don't know if that's a control, but I I feel like I've I've had close to. Have you all ever had like a visual Not this clearly, not like this, but tell us, Laura, you are our guest. Can you tell us about your visionary encounter with the dead? Yeah, for sure. It's more someone close to me who had the clearest encounter. And then I had sort of like an energetic encounter when my cousin who was very close to died in 2004. And he, um, his brother um, has very, very long hair. And um, he he had dated this woman, uh, Nicole, for many, many years. They broke up a couple of years before he died. But the night that he died, she had a dream that she was back in New Hampshire with my whole family and everyone was there, all of my aunts and uncles and cousins, except for my cousin, Jeff, who had been her ex. And um, everyone was gathered around Seth and cutting where it was cutting his hair. And then the next day she found out that Jeff had passed away suddenly the night she had had that dream. And then less than a week later, she was back in New Hampshire and we were all gathered in my aunt and uncle's house and Seth was cutting his hair symbolically um, in honor of his brother who had passed, who also had uh, very long hair. And then um, the day of the funeral, I had like driven to my little downtown in New Hampshire to do an errand. And I was listening to this like, playlist that Jeff had made for me. And I was really upset and crying in my car. And then all of a sudden my entire car was jostled and I looked behind me and this car that had without a driver in it, that had been parked in the street behind me had just like, had just lost control and slid back and hit my car and it didn't damage my car, but it just kind of like, it was just kind of like, come on, like, snap out of it type vibe like Holy it just shit. jostled me just this driverless car but yeah the the dream of the of the um I feel like the dreams happen more often yeah. is what I hear of people having an intuition or someone mm-hmm. appearing to them in a dream before they found out they've passed yeah shit okay well that's I, we have to ask Latoya what the scary rating is on this episode <laughs> Uh, of the podcast that gave me like full body chills scary isn't the right word just like hair raising maybe you know just like the the, a story that really just makes your whole body remember that all this is just a body kind of vibes 
Anyway. Um, <laughs> Speaking of just being a body. Let's go to the funeral. Well, he's cremated, right? He, he's been cremated and his ashes are being uh, scattered into the sea. There's a small group, six adults and two children, I think, mm-hmm. uh, scullies. What do you think the collective noun for a group of scullies is? A sigh of scullies. An eye roll of scullies. An eye roll of scullies, please. But Laura, you get to you get to pick. You are the official. All I can really think of is the plural of Mulder, which relates to scully, which would be a dammit of Mulders. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> Hell yeah! Amazing. I think that I love Scully's mom is an opinion I have. I think, and I don't know if mm. we'll meet her, more of her and maybe my opinion will change or be uh, cemented more, but I really enjoyed her vibe in this episode. Um, really? You don't think she could have just said, yes, your father was proud of you when Scully asked, was my dead father proud of me at all? She had to say, he was your father instead of, of course he was proud know. of you. I don't know because, I mean, you know how like, from an outsider's perspective, like I think from an outsider's perspective, it's easy to say, like, just say yes. But I think that, like, yeah. if your mom says something that is not like, I just feel like she said what she said. And by the end of the episode, like Scully has picked that up and like, yeah. I don't know, understood it. So I don't know. I I, I didn't. Yeah, there's like something sort of like uh, central to her father in that way and it's also it feels like maybe her mom is thinking about ways in which he was her husband you know what i mean yeah. like it, it, she could just as easily say he was my husband mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's, it, it I think- feels like it implies it, for me it feels like it um gives a little bit of a window of insight into maybe what made scully so kind of rigorous it it, it feels like maybe she was raised in a family of origin where she had to defend any position with like Mm. a lot of like be able to back it up with all of the the facts and maybe had caregivers who were not ever going to sugarcoat something um which could have like led to her superpower and her core wound Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she de- it definitely seems like she was raised in a place where practicality and logic had to be put front and center, which is her entire heartbeat, at least at this point. But then alongside with all of the Christian iconography, which it's interesting, the episode that is about her wanting to be a believer, wanting to believe or being the role reversal of being less less of the skeptic is one where because what is faith if not, uh, you know, the the releasing of a need for logic sorry i had to deeply sigh it was <laughs> very well put laura um all right let's leave the funeral yeah and go to yeah let's um, it's getting it's getting it's getting well here. you know what you know where i go after a funeral when i want to cheer up is to death Street row to um yep yes. to prison um, we've got some kiss kill knuckle tats here on bogs that's the first shot um, and he is essentially pranked by Mulder in this scene. Mulder has cut a piece of his New York Knicks t-shirt. Is Mulder from, why does Mulder have a New York Knicks t-shirt? Uh... I mean, like, I, I nothing against the New York Knicks. It's just we've seen his, like, Georgetown stuff, and he's like, yep. so I just wonder where New York Knicks came from. 
Uh, but I guess he yeah, just it's loves curious. the Knicks. I think canonically he's from Martha's Vineyard. Oh my God, yes. I just discovered that with a Google yes. search and I'm shook. <laughs> yeah. I know we, I was we not were expecting also shook. that. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's a Vineyard kid. Um, but he basically takes this piece of his own t-shirt and hands it to... Boggs, which Boggs takes in his hands and he's like holding it and smelling it. And it appears as though he is getting the visions that he has from this piece of fabric, which we can talk about. But the prank of it all is that Mulder's like, haha, gotcha. That wasn't from the fucking crime scene at all. So Boggs clearly knows, right? He, he clearly knows that this is not a piece of fabric from the crime scene. But also everything that he says in this scene is accurate and true. Basically, he is saying the boy is tied with twine. He's telling details of like the torture that's happening to them. Um, And he's doing this because he wants his life to be saved if he gives the information and all of the details to where the kids are. But he like sort of is in this battle for many scenes in the episode of like allowing the information to be communicated and then like him coming in to like push down that channel of information to say like, hold on, you can't get all of it until you give me this pardon, until you get me this pardon. Um, And so Mulder basically is like, you're full of shit and I know you're full of shit now because this was a t-shirt and Mulder walks out and when Mulder walks out, this is this is the moment when I was like, but maybe a two, like maybe a two out of five for the scare for the like scary, creepy ranking. Because as <laughs> when he walks out, Bog starts singing Beyond the Sea, um, which we have just heard played at the funeral and which we know is a song of deep significance in everything that Dana has just gone through. And she sees her dad in the chair and her dad. Well, then it's him. And then it's Boggs. And Boggs says, did you get my message? Starbuck. Terrifying. Even if Boggs, as it's later posited, you know, like, looked up who Mulder's partner is and then, like, researched her family, what, uh, in the prison library, like, microfiche section, like, and somehow found out that Beyond the Sea played at her parents' wedding and, like, found out that her father had just passed... How could he have dug up the nicknames? Yeah, he couldn't mm-hmm. have. Like, he couldn't okay. have. I'm glad we're all in agreement And she here. knows that. Like, that's the thing. Is like, she knows. She knows that. Um, but she's not ready to know that. No, she sure is not. Um, and so Mulder is going to interrogate him now as somebody who's just involved with the murders. Um, cut to Scully driving her car. She sees uh, a neon waterfall per his per his info that the uh, kids were being held near a waterfall, water falling. It's not a waterfall, not water. Here it is, a neon Hotel Niagara sign uh, and the statue of an angel. So she immediately is like, I better bust down this alley and see if there's a condemned sign on a door anywhere alone. I'm only five foot two or whatever. So brave. Really? So- Cause I was not happy with her in this moment, Laura. 
My notes turn to all caps in this scene. Scully, why would you just walk in there? What the fuck? Oh no, lit candles and then bitch, why are you still in there? This is what I'm feeling about Scully in this moment. But she finds Elizabeth's bracelet and also as predicted by Boggs, a wire hanger kind of straightened into mm. an object of flagellation. Mommy dearest you know, up in here. I do. I do now. Scully somehow makes it out of this situation unscathed, which is surprising because, I mean, once you see that the candles are lit, like that's the moment when you turn around and walk out of this friggin' room. Um, yeah. But she makes it out and the next scene is her in the motel room and she is literally trying to channel her father. She is sitting across from a an empty chair seeing like flashes of her dad. This is a hard this is a 90 degree nope, a 180 degree turn for for Scully. <laughs> and what do we think like she wants like do, are we meant to believe that what she wants the message to be is that he approves of her? Is it like that it, a one to one of that's what we're going for here? It's hard because it's like he it's it is like I mean, the, clearly, right? Like, that's the question that she wants the answer to. But it feels like the bigger question is, is she seeing this? You know, like, mm -hmm. is this something that she I mean, is it something that she can believe? Is this real? And it feels like the universe keeps screaming yes in her face. And she's still like, maybe if I, you know, when you're like uh, looking for a sign and you're like, but not that sign. Okay. But, but okay. But maybe <laughs> some other kind of sign. That's what this feels like. That, that feels like the larger bit of it for me. Um, Mulder comes over and is making fun of Boggs in a way that I feel like only someone who's a deep believer would like, like he just goes so hard on like, yeah, he was going on and on about all of his predictions for like five hours. And after three, I asked him to some Jimi Hendrix and Scully confesses that she actually lied to the police and the way that she found this spot was based on every single thing that Boggs uh, told them in the interrogation. Um, and let's hear a bit of this exchange. Why did you feel you had to lie on your police report? I thought it would be a better explanation under the circumstances. What you're really saying is that you didn't want to go on record admitting that you believed in Boggs. The Bureau would expect something like that from Spooky Mulder, but not Dana Scully. Um, another central piece of this episode, which Scully says in her own words, is that all of us, I think, would have thought that Mulder would be excited, even if he doesn't think that Boggs is for real right? psychic. Totally. Wouldn't the man be still? This is this is 12 episodes in. All he has wanted is this for Scully to have a glimmer of belief. And he gets it and he kind of just shuts it down. He says something uh, to her. I believe it's the scene. Is this the scene where he says, open yourself to extreme possibility only if it's the truth? Yeah. And like, holy shit, that is a gaslight if I've ever Sorry. heard. Like, <laughs> how are you going to open yourself to something? Like, you? it's required that you already know it's true. So how do you, like, opening yourself implies, like, becoming open to the possibility something is true. And so he's just kind of like, your extreme beliefs are a little much, but my extreme spooky <laughs> beliefs are right yes. in the right zone. 
Yes, I literally wrote, why is he the only one who gets to say what is and isn't the truth? Like, that feels unfair. And like, you know, it's couched in like that he's concerned for her because if she is believing Boggs and Boggs is a phony, it could be a setup and she could be in harm, like in harm's Mm -hmm. way. But like, agree. I was, I, it's just like, man, we finally got her here. We've all been at home sitting on our couches. Like, man, will she ever believe? And then Mulder just slammed the door in our faces. (laughs) (laughs) And not to take, not to take like the, a potentially interpreted as like cynical feminist interpretation of this whole like vibe of him not believing her in this context. But it does feel too that Throughout this episode, he's certainly showing compassion for her grief and her loss, but there's also maybe a little bit of an implication going on of like, you aren't in your right, you you don't have, you're too emotional to uh, have yeah. your full faculties of your normal yeah. You know, yeah. ability to reason. And so I can't, I Mulder can't trust that like you even would believe this if you weren't sad about dad. Sorry, Meanwhile, the entire reason that he believes what he believes and does what he does is because his sister was legit taken. Like, it Truth. Is, it, it's, it, all it, it's, it's all emotional. It's emotional. It's all emotional. And it's yeah. all based on, yeah, family. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, my God. I was just thinking back to uh, the Ruby episode when... Mulder just rolled into an abduction case, projecting himself onto little Kevin, gently stroking the framed family photographs on the mantle. And this man is like, everyone, (laughs) Scully, don't be so emotional. emotional. Your emotions are controlling how you're interpreting this information. Yeah. And also just so fitting that we are a generation of, especially the women that loved this show and were consuming it at you know in such such uh impressionable ages it's like this character of scully who is so aspirational in terms of everything we've mentioned already like her competence and her intelligence and her courage and all of these things and then seeing her interpersonally and in institutions and systems that are constantly belittling are being like patronizing patronizing her belittling her and um not believing her it's real yeah Yeah. that part's fun yeah Yeah. Yeah. so fun so and then then knowing she's not getting paid as much behind the scenes (laughs) yeah Yeah. great (laughs) yeah one question about this like fake piece of press that Mm -hmm. Mulder like ends up is that a thing is that like a legal thing that the FBI ever... I really hope not. That it feels you... almost like FBI AI, FBI AI. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> if you're like creating just entirely fake news stories. Yeah, they have six papers printed with this fake headline. If you are uh, in the FBI or tangentially involved with the FBI, can you let us know if making fake media is a thing that is done to again trick prank criminals into confessing that question mark i don't know i mean it's a wild move like i love it as i like i love the idea of it as a move like oh he'll just think they're caught but it was very very wild well and he said something about only six people know and i wondered what are like two of those people the or four of those people the parents like wouldn't you have to communicate with Gosh, the parents? Gosh, you'd hope so. Yeah. Well, but it's only, it's no one else is going to see it, though. 
Oh, it's it's a whole fake newspaper. I see. It's a, yeah, yeah. Like, I misunderstood. It's a, it is an isolated. Oh, like, thank God. Probably the six people who know are like the two people at the printing press, and like, you know what I mean? It's like okay, that's contained... far less problematic than I originally. Okay. Thought. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I was with you, Laura. Woof. Oh my gosh! Wow. What for once in my life, I actually had more information than other people. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> Well, it doesn't even work for one second. Boggs comes for phone privileges and just picks up the receiver and stares directly into the surveillance <gasps> cam. And it must burn Mulder so deeply to hear the words come out of Boggs' mouth. How come you don't believe me? <laughs> Agent Scully does. Not, not only is Mulder convinced that this man is doing everything he's doing to get back at Mulder. But he's also waving the flag of like, Scully's just always, you know, too many, just one step far, too far behind you to see a man levitating or a UFO lift off into space or whatever. But she believes this. She's all in. Ugh. This is so terrifying. The one thing you don't want ever is for someone to look directly at you through a camera via TV. Like, you just don't yeah, want no. it. It's a bad vibe uh, from top to bottom. Honestly, sometimes my son. <laughs> sometimes my son, I will look in on the monitor and he will be staring directly into <laughs> the monitor. The room is, you know, pitch black. And the monitor is equipped with, like, night vision, which makes his eyes glow in, like, a truly terrifying sort of, like, paranormal activity-esque way. And he just, like, looks with his, like, eyes that look... It looks like he's wearing, like, all, like, whole eye contacts that are black. And then there's just these little pinpoints of light. It's chilling. Yeah, that sounds uh, Children terrifying. are scary. <laughs> Um, so Skelly makes the point, right? It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if he has this information because he's working with the killer or or the kidnapper or if he has this information because he's psychic. We have to deal. Like, we have to play right? this game. We have Save these kids. Seriously. Mulder. Um, yeah. So we get a second report from Boggs. This is a male. He's thin. He's in his late 20s. He sees... Um, that he's in a small boathouse on Lake Jordan, and he tells Mulder, don't go near the White Cross. We see you down, and your blood spills on the White Cross. FBI storms in to the boathouse. I call this the boathouse of torture, not to make light of this, but I did. Um, and they storm in with their flashlights. We've got a few counts of flashlights. Jenny, we'll have to confer our notes later and decide oh. how many ticks the flashlights get for this episode. Yes. Um, they find just the girl and Mulder goes looking for, you know, either the kidnapper or the guy or the kid that's kidnapped the boy, um, or both. And he gets shot. You guys, he gets shot. He, he does. And this is where the formative moment begins of the level of <laughs> this is it. Dana's concern for an injured Mulder, the, the speed at which her jacket comes off. What's she going to do yeah. with that jacket? I guess she's going to tie it around him, but whatever she's going to do, I was interested in knowing and with my body. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Laura, yeah. And this is... At what co would you accept your blood spilled upon a white cross as reasonable payment for such an experience? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Clear. I mean, 
I'm sorry, but what kind of fanatic, uh, what, what kind of MTV fanatic is going to say no to that deal? It's not Laura. <laughs> Again, as long as I am going to ultimately be okay and survive, mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. open to a range of scenarios of how I get there. Live um, happily ever after with her as my older sister mentor, Bruce <laughs> lover. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about the various jackets of Scully, Laura, but having only seen 13 episodes, this jacket of hers has been worn twice, and this is my fa- my favorite jacket, which is saying a lot. There's a lot of suit jackets. There's a lot of uh, trench coats, etc. This silk FBI, like, almost bomber jacket is everything for it's me. It's good. It's really good. I, cool I, jacket. I'm a little... Uh, I, I, I do love the trench coat on her, though. The trench coat. Okay. Mm-hmm. The tan yeah, one? Yeah, or do you yeah. go, you know, she has a purple one, too. Probably also a black one. I mean, what came to mind just in, like, my memories database was tan. Tan. Okay. Classic. <laughs> okay, so at the hospital, they're showing Elizabeth, who is very fucked up, mugshots, and she identifies the kidnapper as Lucas Jackson. Henry, he was witness to an accident in which his high school sweetheart was killed and his mother was decapitated. And the seven-year anniversary is in three days, which coincides with the Save the Teens deadline. (laughs) Uh, And this investigator, uh, who is neither Scully nor Mulder, says that uh, it's widely suspected that Luther Lee Boggs committed his last five murders with a partner. And everybody believes that that partner was Lucas Henry. So that would lend weight to the Boggs is orchestrating this from the inside theory. It would also lend weight to Scully being so mad, madder in fact than she has ever been in her life. (laughs) She wasn't this mad when Mulder got lobotomized by the government. No. Let it be known. Let it be known. Well, because, because not only is Mulder almost dead, but she has been, she tried to believe and she got, do- it's oh, yeah. everything yeah. in her system is rebelling. <laughs> Please let us take a moment with sp- perfect Jillian Anderson and hear what the fuck she says to Boggs when she goes into this prison. You set us up. You're in on this with Lucas Henry. This was a trap for Mulder because he helped put you away. Well, I came here to tell you that if he dies because of what you've done, four days from now, nobody will stop me from being the one that'll throw the switch and gash you out of this life for good, you son of a bitch! How are we all feeling? Great. So great. Laura, are you still with us? I'm I'm here. I, I love... <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I don't... I don't want to be, like, so one note. Like, I'm not... Again, like... You have to understand this is me as an adult more fully comprehending all the complexity of what was going into my very visceral and emotional reactions to Mm -hmm. a character as Mm -hmm. a child when Mm -hmm. I was pre-understanding a lot about myself. So yeah, certainly like the way she speaks to Boggs here. And again, I agree with your interpretation that it's very like saturated and shame for her of like the one time I let myself believe gets mm-hmm. my partner hurt. Um, 
But this isn't just her speaking on behalf of any person. This is clearly like her love language. And I feel like in the show, and I, I, I'm going to be careful throughout of not talking in a way that spoils anything coming, but I do think that there is a dynamic of um, love coming out in under <laughs> extreme duress, which is, you know, interesting to reflect upon. It's like... <laughs> you know, in the moments yeah. that you can truly know how someone feels are when yeah. it's life or death, literally. Yeah. 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 I did predict that their first kiss would happen under direct threat of death. So we don't know if that, I'm sorry, I didn't, my crystal ball. I'm so sorry. It wasn't me. It was my crystal ball. Um, this is uh-huh. fascinating uh-huh. that you, this is the, the, this is fascinating that you, are doing but this I, experiment without knowing anything. <laughs> nothing. Like, oh, and that I'm producing an entire podcast knowing absolutely nothing about what the show is. Yeah. Especially <laughs> there's so many seasons. Like, this is incredible. Like, you're going to, I mean, we're going to have whole opportunities for eras of conversation. Of like, <laughs> what do you think now? You know what I mean? Yeah. That's yeah. wild. <laughs> oh, um... Okay, so in after she lets this loose on Boggs, he says that um, Mulder says you're the one that believed me. She says I didn't, I don't, I don't believe you. And he says if you don't believe me, maybe you'll believe yourself. And does this channeling of fourteen year old Dana. Where she has taken, this is so, I got such like Buffy Faith vibes from this little bit of monologue because it's like, she takes one of her mom's cigarettes, she sneaks out onto the porch with it. She's so scared, but so excited, not because the cigarette was good. It was so gross, but because I wasn't supposed to, which is just like- Because it's wrong. Because it's wrong is like exactly what this is. I- Personally, not being the Gillian Anderson fanatic of the pod right now, but like a fan, a big fan of Dana Scully, the character and Gillian Anderson, the uh, actor, this, this piece of Dana Scully so far, my favorite piece of Dana Scully. I would love to know more about the, I wasn't supposed to Dana Scully. Please tell Mm. me more. (laughs) Also, I think that vibe more captured from what I recall of interviews I've seen with Jillian Anderson about her own youth like that Mm. is more closely aligned with her own experience of high school and I believe high school was when she had a relationship with a woman that she then didn't speak about for years later until that woman passed away and then she started openly speaking about the fact that she had had this love okay some of us didn't know that until right now until I just casually dropped that yeah like what the fuck Laura (laughs) Did you, does that sound right, Jenny? Did you know of this, of of which I speak? Uh, I, I knew that she had talked about having a relationship with a woman like when she was young, but I didn't know that she talked about it only after that woman had died. Okay, I, I will look it up just to make but sure I that, I, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll yeah, I'll back it up. Yeah. But yeah, um, but yeah, so, and I, I did just kind of get that feeling from, I think also just like, 
that's part of what made her feel especially kind of worldly to me as like someone who was Mm. very much a late bloomer and did not experience kind of that adventurous exploration of self until Mm. later I think Mm -hmm. yeah the whole thing just it all all the pieces coming together where um it all paints a picture yeah (laughs) Laura I can't wait for our sex education podcast you know what I mean oh I do (laughs) oh here we go from the independent uh the UK um Mm -hmm. publication she died of a brain tumor a year earlier, and I'd never really spoken about her, Anderson told Even Magazine. She was a beautiful person who was very meaningful in my life, and I wanted to honor her instead of hiding my experience. Oh, oh, Jillian. Which is interesting, because we were just talking about, under duress, true feelings coming out. Yeah. Mm, shit. Mm. Can I just read a little bit more of this? Yes. Yeah. The actress who first discussed her gay relationship in 2012 was in high school when the two dated quote for a long time, but thought it was important not to not hide what happened following her death in 2011. So confirmed it was a high school girlfriend. It was a serious girlfriend. Laura, we did not doubt you uh, at all. (laughs) Not for a moment. Um, That's great. All right. These are two line delivery moments in this scene that also like, took my breath away well really Jillian's is the one that took my breath away Bog says I know what you want and I know who you want to talk to and she says and I'm not going to even try to do it I'm not going to play the sound clip because literally it can't be replicated and it won't the clip won't do it justice but she says I'll believe you if if you let me talk to him the way that she says that line is so heartbreaking and incredible and all he gives her is the dad saying Starbuck before he like shoves it down again and is like, nobody talks until I get a deal. Um, I also think that this is a really incredible performance. Brad Dourif talking about his fear. um, And if you listen to the full conversation that we have with Sophie, you will hear um, that this is not, it's not a common experience, but it is not an isolated experience of, Um, a person who has gone to the experience of being executed and gotten their stay when they are there and the trauma of that knowing knowing not only that you're going to do this unknown thing but now knowing what that unknown thing is um, and how absolutely traumatized this this character you know is slash that there are people who have experienced this thing that this character is experiencing Um, and I like this. I I like a lot of his lines, but I really like this idea that like he knows he said, I know my hell is going to, you know, be going back to this chair over and over again. It sounds like I'm talking about an electric chair, just in case you haven't uh, seen the episode. It's actually just the chair that he is in in the gas chamber, which is what is used in this episode. But um, he says that that's going to be his hell. But he does not want to ever do that again in this life while he is living. He never wants to have that experience. He knows that he'll have to like that's his his idea that his he's going to hell he also must be a christian uh and that his hell is going to be this experience over and over again Mm. the two characters have these like moments of searing vulnerability in different ways with each other in a way that we don't even see at least on scully's side her being this vulnerable with Mulder in this episode Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I do. There's there's something subtle about what they do with this relationship uh, that I did appreciate about this story. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, Scully is, I mean, probably the things that make her feel comfortable is probably the wrong word, but the things that open her up to being vulnerable with with Boggs is that, A, Boggs is going to be executed. He literally will not be here anymore very soon. But also, B, even if he were, he's he's an unreliable narrator to anyone that she, like, cares about. So she has this... freedom i mean again i'm like painting very broad brush strokes here but she has this freedom to kind of say whatever to him and know that it's a vault in one way or another Kristen, i want to rock your world for a second i that. think it's no jillian anderson dated a woman when she was in high school but i think this will shock and awe you <laughs> okay um brad Dourif, uh you recently saw him when you watched lord of the rings for the first time oh i did he plays Worm Tongue. He's like a scuttly little uh, dark wizard type. Oh, nice. Uh, he was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That I knew. Which, you told you know me him. that. Okay. And I, because I was a, like, I watched that movie many times. I, listen, that's the whole other exploration into my deeper self. But I watched that film so many times. And his portrayal of Billy Bibbit um, is something that is like emblazoned into my mind because I, it's fucking yeah. brilliant. He was also Doc Cochran on Deadwood. He was speaking of Lynchian things. He was in Blue Velvet. He was in the original Dune. And Kristen, he is an integral part of a major horror franchise that started in the late 80s. Can you make a guess of any kind? Laura, I'm also accepting your guesses if you don't know for a fact. Um, I'll go Friday the 13th. Okay. Mm, Halloween. Okay. So while Laura, he did participate in the 2007 remake of Halloween and its sequel. Uh, That is not what we're looking for. He voiced Chucky in the Child's Play franchise. Whoa. What? (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. Including the recent, the recent reboot? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and apparently his daughter Fiona is part of the more recent installation, uh, the more recent installments. Fucking shit. Okay, you're right. It actually, I mean, no offense to the Gillian Anderson being totally gay in high school fact, but that actually blew my mind more. That is mind blowing. Is abundant. Okay, we yeah. don't need to. There's not a hierarchy. Yeah, it's not a competition. It's not. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a, sure, sure, yeah, sure. <laughs> There's enough mind blowing to go around um, for sure. So then we get Scully at your bedside. Uh, if you've not made a Scully at your bedside jingle, um, I hope that you will for <laughs> at least me personally. Jenny, add it to the list. Add yeah, it to the list. the list. He literally has, she has been at his bedside at least twice in the last two episodes. Like, like l- quite literally, she was at his bedside last episode when he inhaled too much smoke. So when I reflect upon like what gender norms did I learn early on? It's like, if you're a lady, you're going to be at a bedside a bunch. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so it's interesting that like my kind of erotic projections onto older actresses were like, I'm obviously going to have to be injured first in order to like achieve the connection I'm going for. Yeah. I want Scully at my bedside. Right. Inspire the caretaker, you know. Scully at my bunk bed. You know what I mean? (laughs) Scully at my bunk bed. Were you on the top or the bottom of your bunk bed? 
I was typically on the top. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> but I was mostly, a switch. This is I was a family show. I was a bunk bed switch. <laughs> Sometimes okay. I, yeah. If I Just wanted cause... like the, if I wanted like the fairy, like if I wanted to create a cave bed, I would do the bottom bunk because then I'd like okay. drape the blankets. If I wanted mm-hmm. to um, feel on top of the world, it went for top. I was a bunk bed switch. Um, the the reason that I asked is because I like wondered where's like if Scully in was the I, fantasy, if... I was in the bottom bunk. Okay, okay. Thank you for that <laughs> clarification. Like, was Critical. she standing on the ladder? You know what no, I mean? Like, where no, was no, no, she? No, no, no. <laughs> no, no. She needed to be like sitting on the edge, like yes. you know, with me. Yeah. You know, yeah. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. Um, Scully is at. Mulder's bedside and she's saying that they're running out of time um Mulder's Mulder counter to everything he said for the last 12 episodes is saying no matter what do not believe him um and he says he could be trying to claim you as his last victim okay so a tiny scene that we skipped over is when Scully goes to what I refer to in my notes as the North Carolina government place I'm going to say this is the governor's office. That's where you get stays from, right? From the governor. Sounds right. Sounds believable. Yeah. Uh, And he says, no deal. This guy, we should have executed this guy a long time ago. Um, And before, before we go to Scully then lying about what this governor says, since no one in this room is a governor, nor have any of us uh, ever interfaced in any way, to my knowledge, with what happens um, in states that have the death penalty? What happens when folks are on death row? Let's hear a segment from our conversation with our listener, Sophie. This conversation ruled so hard that we are putting the entirety of it up as an episode um, for you all and encourage you to listen to it because... Yeah, she's wonderful. She's wonderful. And much like so many of the things that like we've dug into in, you know, in the sco- in the context of 90s television, um, the death penalty and the systems that sustain it um uh, uh, you know as we talk about a lot are upheld in a large part by our like sort of lack of information that so many of us mm. do not have any idea what happens or how it happens and that uh lack of information keeps us from being active and you know fighting back and saying this is super fucked up so from that standpoint Please listen to the full thing because I think it's a really important thing that is not talked about in this way very often. Hello, Sophie. Welcome to the pod. Hi, very excited to be here. Can you, for our dear gentle listeners, uh, explain in your own words the nature of what it is you do? Yeah. So this is going to sound really complicated, but I promise it's not. My full job title is I am a capital mitigation specialist for the federal public defender's office. Basically what that means is I work at a federal on the federal level. I work at the federal defender's office in Missouri and capital means that I work with folks who have been sentenced to death and are on death row uh, exclusively and mitigation specialist sort of refers to looking for mitigating evidence. And essentially what that means in the in the simplest terms, when a decision maker is looking at one of our clients, they are looking at the case, right? In a in the most abstract term, 
our client for a lot of people is nothing more than a docket number and a stack of black and white paper that says this is what the person did. The goal of my work always is to try to help whoever is making a decision about my client see them as the full person they are rather than just this black and white pile of paper in front of them. So viewing this episode through your very specialized lens, how did you feel about it? I actually really love this episode. One of the reasons I love this episode uh has to do in large part with Brad Dourif's portrayal of Boggs as a character. So something that I find comes up a lot, especially in our sort of more popular television procedurals when we're talking about folks on death row, we often see them portrayed as boogeymen, right? They are terrifying people who are either incredibly violent and unhinged and or they are so intelligent and manipulative that no one has any hope of interacting with them right? in a way that feels grounded or equal. And I think there is some of that. There is certainly some manipulation in the way that Boggs interacts with uh, Scully in particular. I did find for the most part that even that feels somewhat grounded in his sort of desperation. I looked at this article where this gentleman examined five films about the death penalty, and he sort of talked about, my initial thought was, I'm not used to seeing people who are housed on death row portrayed with as much humanity as Brad Dorif gives this character. And mm -hmm. this, this gentleman, uh, he wrote an article called Muted Message, sort of criticizing Hollywood's uh, portrayal of death row. And his critique is really that we have these films that portray people at who are on death row in one specific character as being sympathetic. And then you get to the end of the movie and you feel badly that that person was executed. But the movies don't actually take any sort of jab at the system as a whole. It's really just interested in this one person. Mm -hmm. And we see this mm -hmm. a lot now sort of mm -hmm. in a lot of the true crime media and activism is really focused on people who are on death row who are innocent and I don't want to minimize that that is a significant issue. But again, if we're only focusing on the people that are innocent, you don't have to interrogate the larger system. You don't have to worry about the people who are on death row yeah. who committed the crime. But that doesn't mean that we have the right to to kill them. That's that's just it, too. It's like the black and white nature of of everything, especially in media and especially in like the way that our brains are taught to look at it that like so I think so many people come to the conversation around death row as well, we shouldn't have that because what if you're innocent? Mm -hmm. And that's the end of the thought process. And and I'm not I'm not belittling that. I'm definitely someone who has like walked that same thought process. Well, how could you do that? Was clearly the like the justice system is flawed. So like there are innocent people there, but it doesn't go that those those mm -hmm. extra steps, not one extra step, but many extra steps to say why do we think that it that this is a solution for anyone who has done anything and and who who can really draw those lines. It has always felt really important to me to try to make this feel personal to people because I think it's most people in the U.S. never have to think about the death penalty or actually consider what it looks like. I just wanted to end with this idea that Sister Helen Prejean, who is a huge hero of mine, in her book, Dead Man Walking, talks about this study that happened in 1975, where two fellows at Yale Law uh, School spoke to folks about their feelings on the death penalty. 
and then gave them some information about how capital punishment actually works in the United States. And they found that people are less inclined to favor the death penalty if they are given, quote, even minimal information about it. And so I would encourage you, if this resonates with you at all, there are so many fabulous resources online. Um, Death Penalty Information Center has tons of fact sheets and articles and resources. They also sort of keep a tally of upcoming executions and past executions. This is a horrific system that is allowed to continue churning because nobody wants to look at it and nobody has to look at it. And so I would really, really encourage folks to sort of um, educate yourselves and get involved. I have lost four clients and I loved every one of them very dearly. And it's, it is very, it's very hard. And I think we don't talk enough about the fact that when you execute a person, you're not just hurting that person. You are creating new victims in their families and friends and the people who care about them. Thank you for the work that you do, uh, first and foremost. Uh, it is incredibly powerful and resonant, and I'm sure that you've made a huge impact on the lives of so many people um, in that sort of ripple that you're talking about. Um, and thank you for being here with us. I, I, think, I think I speak for both Jenny and I in saying that this is truly the best part of doing the work that we do. Uh, is getting to have conversations like these that take something, you know, that was created decades ago and then use that as the lens to look at things that are really important right now. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Scully rolls in and she's like, I got you a deal. I rule. It's all happening. And he, even though... He reveals moments from now that he knows she's lying. He tearfully says, thank you, ma'am. And I think that he sa he's saying, thank you for believing me and thank you for trying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the classic, like, if you were a psychic, you would have known I fill in the blank uh, <laughs> move from Scully. <laughs> um, but yeah, he does know. And like, this is, I think... If we haven't as an audience believed that Boggs is truly um, like channeling something, this is the moment I think when you're like, it, for sure, like for sure, this guy has some kind of connection to something. Um, and he tells her that um, she should avoid the devil when she goes to the place that he's explained circles, barrels, vats, um, the blue devil brewery. She needs to avoid the devil. Don't follow Henry to the devil. Leave that to me. Um, and so Scully takes, you know, a team to this brewery. Uh, and Lucas is there with this kid. Um, he's doing, he's also doing, this is another moment of like, okay, clearly the Boggs is in on something with spirits, something with channeling, because he, in the scene before, Boggs is like doing this like chopping motion as he's talking about like Lucas is like very close to doing this thing. And when we cut to the brewery, we see that exact same motion and movement from Lucas. Yeah, whipping a hatchet around with yeah. reckless abandon. I don't understand. And like, we, there's no answer to this, but this, this like very loose 
hey, um, he witnessed this horrifying thing and now he's like reenacting something is is very weird to me because like all he's doing is like killing this kid. Um, so to, I don't. It's not like an older woman and a younger woman. Uh, right. And it's also like it didn't start. It's like the seventh anniversary, but he didn't start until this tradition sixth? until last year. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, neither here nor there, really. But he's about to kill this kid, and the FBI storms in. Um, Scully shoots him. Has Scully shot anyone yet? Question mark. She shot an air duct. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember her shooting anybody. But I don't think we've seen her shoot anyone. I think this is, might be the first time. I feel like it's also worth mentioning. I think maybe I heard this on the X Files files when when that show that when that podcast was happening a long time ago. I think they talked a bunch about how this was like a new. It was relatively new on television in like 1993 for people to be like running around with guns out and shooting mm. all the time. <laughs> just just throwing it out there that this is relatively new. Mm -hmm. So he runs and they follow and Scully sees the blue devil painted on the wall of the brewery and she stops because uh, Boggs said this very thing would happen and Lucas Henry falls through this like little bridge by the painting uh, of the blue devil and falls to his death. To his death? Question mark? I think it's to his death. To his death. Yeah, he's looking pretty mm -hmm. bent and twisted down there. Uh, so Scully goes to visit Boggs and says, I believe that if you orchestrated this kidnapping... Lucas Henry would have been aware of the danger you warned me about. What if he wanted Lucas Henry to die because they were in cahoots, but if he's dead, he could never reveal uh -huh. to the FBI or anyone mm. that actually Boggs was involved. Just, just this tossing is what I'm it out saying. there. Why not both? Right? It's not an either sure. or. It's this is a this guy is working the psychic or, angle or and maybe the murder Boggs angle. Is doing, maybe he's doing a Dexter. Uh, he's like, I'm on a quest for redemption and I'm going to kill this guy before he can kill anyone else. Yeah. A thought. So Boggs says that if she wants, if Scully wants this message from her father, she should be his witness today when he is executed. Um, and then when they open up the shield, he will deliver the message. How do we feel as a group about this? I feel like... Okay, being asked to be someone's witness, I can't even begin to imagine the gravity and the, like, many different feelings that that could dredge up. And it, it would be, I think, a really complicated thing to consider under even the simplest of circumstances, you know? However, the fact that Scully does not show up and this man does not have a witness feels rough rough real rough it's, i mean and she's rough. just said that like you saved my life like she's you know attributed to him you know <laughs> something very sacred and um yeah is not willing to kind of step into that space for him yeah it's a huge huge bummer um uh and this scene is you know, and, you know, Jenny, we talked about this a bit with Sophie. This scene um, is incredibly heavy in the, like, second half of it when he's actually in the room. But I know that, and I agree with you, um, that the way that they set up this walk um, was really powerful for you. 
Yeah, it's very it's very heavy to see to see him, you know, physically pained when confronted with the the specters of his victims. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I'm unclear about whether everyone in that hallway is a victim of his or if some of them are just like other souls. souls. Yeah. That he like met. <laughs> yeah, because the five, the, the Thanksgiving, his family members are very clear. Like they stand all together yeah. and they're sort of like, as he's eating his last meal, they're like with him because he killed them after what was then their last meal. Um, right. But yeah, I also am unclear. But I just feel like, you know, this is what I mean when I got upset with Mulder before, right? That like, it's clear that Boggs is not just a bad man. And that idea is just so fucked up, in my opinion. And I think that the episode mm. actually turns it on its head anyway. Um, but, you know, did this, uh, did Boggs do some really, really bad things? Yes. Does he also find himself like haunted by the memories of those things? Is he a person with complex feelings? Should Scully have shown up to be his witness? Like, you know, these are all really important things too. I think the like, the way that he is reacting on this walk goes against Mulder's assertion that like the sum total of this man is that uh, he is someone who kills because he likes it. Yeah. I, I don't think that's the whole story at at the very least. Agree. Yeah, totally. But I will say too, just like for in some way defense of Scully, like certainly this isn't her role or job to accept no. this request, you know, simply because it, you know, it does have gravity. It doesn't mean um, that's her job. Uh, mm -hmm. And certainly you also would probably only want to show up for that sort of role and to witness someone's transition in that way if you were willing and able to hold that space and yeah. I feel like that alone yeah. takes um, totally. a specific person or or mentality or relationship totally yeah totally and not that she would have had the ability to hold that space any other time but certainly she also just lost her father oh, yeah. like she's you know she's also not okay in a lot of ways that have to deal with yeah. loss and sudden loss and death and on and on would she really want that that to be her last memory of her father tied in with the yeah. state sanctioned murder of mm. a murderer like yeah that too yeah. feels yeah like she already has her own memories of her father, which I think is, you know, hit home by her last quote about why she doesn't need to know the message. Yeah. You want to talk about uh, this exchange, this last exchange between Mulder and Scully? So she's back to skeptical, right? Like, like, and now Mulder is back to being like, why can't you believe? <laughs> what the <laughs> Mulder. <laughs> whiplash i've got whiplash with this guy uh-huh <laughs> when he asks if she wanted to know what the father's message was she says i do know he was my father and then there's a shoulder touch yes there is um there's also significant eye contact for the second time and i only have one <laughs> jingle 
uh, for significant eye contact, but I like to note when the significant eye contact happens before cut to commercial. However, this is the first time that it ever cuts to credits. So <gasps> it's in that bin and amplified. <laughs> Okay, so we talked about the episode. Indeed. I'm also feeling whiplash from Mulder. I also am very curious to see what this does to Dana. But Jenny has eyes that are screaming sexual tension awards. Speaking of doing things to Dana, let us turn now to the sexual tension awards. Beautiful listeners, uh, we have come to it once again. Uh, the most arguably important part of the show, the Sexual Tension Awards. Uh, as usual, we have slots, and as usual, I have stuffed them full of noms just for you. Please consider the following options. In slot number one, touching arms, connecting with their eyes, uh, emotionally supporting one another, rushing to each other's bedsides. That's the mothership. It's Mulder and Scully. In slot number two, a variation on a theme. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Some men just love the chase. It's often been said. Uh, Some people want what they cannot have and then when they get it they want the opposite and thus it is with our second noms it's Mulder and his blatant undermining of Scully's big opportunity to believe she just wanted to believe this one time and he couldn't let it happen <laughs> no bats even though no it's what he wanted all God along damn it. he's like believing's my thing yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> It's slot number three. Uh, speaking of connection, uh, this is, oh, does this count as a polycule? It's Luther Lee Boggs and 1,000 <gasps> souls entering his body. Guinness Book doesn't of s- World Records polycule right there. Doesn't seem like any of our business, and yet there it is right on screen. In slot number four, offered to us by our very special guest, Laura Zach. It's big. It's loud. It's playing to the back of the theater. It's Brad Dorif and his own performance. They are, well, dear listener, I'm doing that motion where my fingers are slotting together. Um, you get it. Wait, you're not adding in the fifth slot? And in slot number five. Thank you. The fuck? Do you think this is amateur porn hour? I don't know. I, in slot number five. A love story for the ages. You know, in the notebook, when he wrote her every day for a year, he didn't write to Vogue magazine. He -mm. didn't do a self-tape and send it in to MTV Fanatic. (laughs) I'd say Ryan Gosling in the notebook has a little bit further to go if he wants to reach the romantic heights of Laura Zach (laughs) and Gillian Anderson. Yay? Yay. Yay. Air horn noises, etc. <laughs> Please look into your heart. Please 
do what is right. Please vote in the Sexual Attention Award poll. The poll is hosted on our Patreon. You don't have to be a patron to vote. You can find it by going to bufferingcast.com slash STA and uh, choose wisely. Now that our eyes have thoroughly considered the various slots and the noms contained within, uh, let us turn them instead to the deep amethyst glow of Kristen's crystal ball. With a special guest comes uh, a new moment for the crystal ball where, uh, Laura, if you have any questions for the crystal ball, it is all yours, actually. Um, I do have a couple of other things I can answer, but with the time that we have here today, you come first. Wow. Thank you so much. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I suppose you've just like really kind of both dropped me back into like what I'm hoping is like my lover girl era, you know, I mean, like. (laughs) I just feel like you, you know, Jenny's um, sort of uh, framing of the the epic, the lifetime epic of the slow burn of this core relationship to my life. I guess I'd like to see into your crystal ball of your prediction of the when, not if, of when I will cross paths with this person. Mm. In a completely chill, non-creepy uh meeting of minds way of course my crystal ball showed the year 2027 which i know is Mm. like not tomorrow i know you baby girl i've been waiting my whole life that's what i was gonna say you've been waiting a long time Mm. no rush the number that i saw the crystal ball showed a seven first and i was like 2007 2017 those have passed so 2027 four years all right i'm ready yeah i'm just gonna just grow my powers until then i just really want to meet her as an equal yeah Hone, hone. Well, I would say that the status of this X-File is gently cupped in the palm of its partner's hand Mm. as he expresses gentle concern for it. Laura, Zach, we are so blessed to have you here with us today. Can you tell the good people at home uh, where they can look upon you or experience your good works um i'm laura zach on instagram i'd say that's that's the place in these complicated times i'm not really on twitter <laughs> anymore <laughs> and thank you so much for having me i'd love to come back anytime i'm oh, sure yeah. there will it's be happening. other scully summonings uh for you for sure laura. i am jenny owen youngs and i am Kristen russo you can find us all things buffering at buffering cast on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok. This episode was produced by Kristen Russo, Jenny Owen Youngs, and Latoya Ferguson with support from our consultant Mackenzie McDade. It was edited by John Mark Nelson, and it was blessed with special guests Laura Zach and Sophie Day. Thanks so much to both of them for joining us. Until next time, the pod is out there. Yes, it is. <laughs>
Hey, you. Look behind you. Wait, not if you're driving. If you're driving, look forward. It's Harry Shum Jr. And if you don't know, now you know, I'm starring in a new Realm podcast, Echo Park. So Echo Park takes place in the not-too-distant future where clones are common and live among non-clones. But they are treated like second-class citizens and are being murdered by anti-clone radicals. When his clone goes missing, James goes looking for him, and in taking over his identity, discovers even more secrets about himself and the clones. I play James, Terrence, and a million other characters in this. You're not going to want to miss this, so make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts Echo Park. You're going to love it. <laughs>